Just a quick heads up. We are going to let the scripture do the preaching as we always do, but we're going to be reading a lot of scripture today. So just be prepared, get your fingers ready to flip and follow along. God is a good, good father. From before time began, God had a plan. And so every step of the way, he has been at work executing his plan. Even though we've continually been stuck, confused, frustrated, and lost. We think we've got a good idea of his plan, and then everything changes. It throws us off, but it doesn't throw him off. It all started with Adam and Eve. And they thought, you know, God's plan was to enjoy paradise and and tend a garden. Then they blow it and things change. But it doesn't catch God off guard. It's a part of his plan. The world fills with people and they become rebellious. So God takes this guy Noah and his wife and his kids and their wives And destroys the rest of the world. Then after that, God chooses this guy, Abram. Who the kids are still uh, learning about this morning, which is so cool. God chooses a people to walk with. And from their perspective, they might have thought, oh, God's plan is to save us. And us alone. But God has a different plan. And through the next hundreds and hundreds and even thousands of years, they follow God and then they rebel. And then they follow and then they rebel. They follow and then they rebel. On and on it goes. They go to Egypt for 400 years. Then they're pulled out by Moses. They rebel and wander in the desert for 40 years. They finally make it to the promised land and they rebel there. Then judges are sent to remind them of how they should be walking. They listen, they repent, and then they rebel. On and on goes the cycle. They get a king. The king rebels. They get other kings. And then the kingdom splits in two. And again, more. Rebel, follow, rebel, follow. If you've been through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you see there's a good king sprinkled in every now and then, but then bad kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings. The whole time, God's plan is not thwarted. He continues to love his children. And because of their continued rebellion, both nations end up in exile, which is where we're at. Then one nation is able to come back and rebuild. The whole time, they're sitting there waiting for a Messiah that they had been promised. They think he will come and save them from their Roman rulers. But God has a different plan. Galatians 4. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, 
You hear God's plan? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. His plan was always Jesus. His plan is Jesus. And we're going to get to see that today. God is our father. He has a good plan and he shows us his plan in, in little pieces. But he's revealed a lot of it to us through scripture. And the more we dive into his word, the more we understand his plan, the more we learn about how good he is. Today is our last week in our series on Jeremiah. Many of you have let me know how much you've learned by going through this series. You've loved the maps, the history, the stories. And the same is true of me. There were stories that I hadn't paid attention to. There were things I learned about the nation of Judah, about Nebuchadnezzar, about Zedekiah, about Jeremiah, and about God. Today, we're going to conclude in two different ways. We're going to look at the book's conclusion, and we're going to go back over where we've been, which will point us to what Jeremiah is all about, to what the Bible is all about. But first, I want to pray together. And seeing as the title may prompt you towards a prayer, I want us all to stand and say the Lord's Prayer together. And make this a prayer, just celebrating our Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. As you're sitting, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 52. Jeremiah chapter 52 is telling the story of the exile. We've been talking a lot about how Jeremiah prophesied to the nation of Judah saying, exile is coming, exile is coming, exile is coming. Now this was such a pivotal event in Israel's history that it was actually recorded four times in scripture. It's recorded in 2 Kings 25, and in fact, uh, most of 2 Kings 25 is almost identical to this chapter. It's also recorded in 2 Chronicles 36, it's recorded in Jeremiah 39, and it's also recorded right here. This chapter, this final chapter of Jeremiah was probably not written by Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 51, the, the end of 
chapter 51 says, thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So this chapter was likely added to show that the prophecies came true. Remember, earlier in our series, we talked about how you identify a false prophet. We talked about, uh, do his prophecies contradict God's word? Maybe a prophecy encouraging idolatry would be one that you would easily call out. We also talked about looking at the prophet's life. Is he living according to God's word? Some of the prophets in Jeremiah's time were adulterers and idolaters. And you look at the way they're living and go, okay, false prophet. But another great way to tell if a prophet is true or false is, did the prophecy come true? That makes it really easy, right? So this chapter is showing that Jeremiah's prophecies came true. And it's also showing that the prophecies of the false prophets did not come true. Remember, these false prophets said, everything's great. We're not going into exile. We're not going to be captured. And so not only is it backing up Jeremiah's prophecies, but it's also knocking down the prophecies of these false prophets. So in verses 1 through 16 of this chapter, we see the fall of Jerusalem. Let me read it. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Different Jeremiah. Okay. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people in the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled and went out from the city by night by the way of a gate between two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were all around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. So you see, they're trying to sneak out. They're trying to get away. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on him. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains, and the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. In the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the king, or the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. And Nebuzaradan, uh, the, ki- the captain of the guard, 
carried away captive some of the poorest of the people and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the artisans. But Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Exile's a mess. It's awful. We've been talking, you know, and, and reading about this destruction that's coming, and now we're staring right at it. But what we see in here, we also see prophecies coming true. Let me read for you just out of Jeremiah 34, just a little bit. It says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah, king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. You shall not escape from his hand, but shall surely be captured and delivered into his hand. See, he tried to escape. But no, Jeremiah's prophecies were the words of the Lord, and they came true. You shall see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face. Eye to eye didn't last very long, but he did. And you shall go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you shall not die by the sword. You shall die in peace. And as spices were burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so people shall burn spices for you and lament for you, saying, Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. All these little details are in there, and they're coming true. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about jailed Jeremiah, Zing Zedekiah. And, and during this, Zedekiah and Jeremiah were having some of these different conversations. And one of the conversations that Jeremiah had, he told Zedekiah, listen, if you surrender, the city won't be burned. But if you don't surrender, you will be taken captive and the city will be burned. So again, here we are seeing prophecies coming true. Continuing on in chapter 52. Verses 17 to 23 talk about... uh, the, the Babylonians coming in and taking the different items from the temple. Uh, if you remember in Exodus 25 through 30 or in 1 Kings 7, there's descriptions about all the different uh, ornate decorations and all the different tools and utensils in the temple. And these are covered with gold and with silver and with bronze. And so they're valuable items. And so the Babylonians come in and they take these items and they're taking the precious metal from these items. Now, what's really cool is if you start comparing Scripture with Scripture, you see in 1 Kings 7 that a lot of the stuff in that passage matches up with the stuff that's mentioned here in Jeremiah 52. But also, lots of archaeological finds have confirmed and given us more understanding of some of these different items. Now, a couple different things to take away from uh, these verses. First of all, there is tons of bronze that's taken. It says in verse 20 that the bronze of all these things was beyond weight. And then another thing to note uh, in the last few verses, 21 through 23, is it's talking about the pillars and how they were ornately designed. These pillars were very beautiful, so it was quite a loss to have them destroyed. 
Verses 24 to 30 talk about uh, the, number, the numbers of the exiles that are taken away. Now, in total, there's a very small number given, 4,500. Now, that's probably only counting the men. So total estimates may be about fifteen to 20,000, assuming an average of one woman and two kids uh, per man. This is still a very small number. I'm a math guy. Let me show you how small this number is. Okay, now, this is not per person, by the way, okay? So each little person up on the screen represents a 1,000 people. And when the Hebrews left Egypt, there were about 600,000 men that left Egypt, okay? So adding in women and children, we've got about 2.4 million people. Now, granted, they wandered around in the desert, they went to the promised land, their numbers rose, their numbers fell, stuff like that. But from the time of Egypt to where we are now, let me show you the people that were taken away to exile. There's what we're looking at in comparison. Just to give you a scope, this is a tiny number of people that were taken away. And what this does is this shows God's sovereignty to bring back a nation from even a group as small as this. This is the small number of people that were taken away into exile, and God grows a nation from that. Now, the last part of chapter 52 takes a little bit of a different turn. So let's read these last four verses of Jeremiah. Chapter 52, starting in verse 31. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, according to his daily needs, until the day of his death, as long as he lived. So kids, if you've been searching for that verse to make your parents give you an allowance, here you go. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Sorry, Micah. All right, so Jehoiachin was the fourth of five kings that ruled uh, during Jeremiah's prophecies. Jeremiah started prophesying during the reign of King Josiah. King Josiah was the last of the kings that loved God. Then Jehoahaz ruled for three months, and then he was ousted, and Jehoiakim took over, and he ruled for 11 years. And then Jehoiachin came in and ruled for three months, and then he was hauled off to exile And Zedekiah was put in his place, and he ruled for 11 years. So, after his three months of rule, uh, Jehoiachin's three months of rule, Jerusalem was captured for the first time. He was taken away. And like I said, Zedekiah was left in charge. Uh, And by the way, evil Merodach, awful name, but uh, he's Nebuchadnezzar's son. So he's, he's there taking over after Nebuchadnezzar has died. Now, this release of Jehoiachin happens about halfway into the 70 years of exile. And what it does is it gives the people hope 
that God's promise of restoration will happen. The book of Jeremiah leaves the nation of Judah in exile, but it also ends with hope. We're going to come back and talk about that hope in just a minute. As we went through the book of Jeremiah, there were four main themes that continued to show up. We looked... Oh, we jumped ahead to lament. That's okay. We looked at each as we went through the book, and now we're going to take a summarizing look at each. We'll be jumping to different passages in Jeremiah as we go, and you're welcome to turn along as we go. So the first one is lament. Through the book of Jeremiah, we saw the prophet weep for his people. We saw him question God. We saw him weep over his own circumstances. I'm going to read out of Jeremiah chapter 8. Remember, we talked about this a little bit. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold, the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images and with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. So we saw Jeremiah lament. We also saw the people lament over their sin. But more so, we saw them lament over the consequences of their sin. We saw them beg God to take away the consequences. And we saw God not relent. Finally, we saw God lament over the choices his people made. Time and time again, God gives them opportunities to change their ways. And time and time again, they fail. We took a Sunday to focus on this topic. And as we talked about lament, we talked about how lament should be honest and open. We talked about how lament is an act of worship. Our God is big enough to hear our cries. He can and wants to handle our deepest hurts and pains. He wants us to bring them before him. Just as any father wants his kids to come to him authentically, so our father wants us to come to him, to run to his arms when we hurt, to weep openly and honestly before him. Next thing we talked about was faithfulness. Jeremiah was a faithful man. He continued to speak the messages that God gave him despite nobody wanting to hear it. Despite being thrown in prison, despite being put in the stocks, being kidnapped, being beaten, despite people calling him a liar, despite people asking him for a better message, despite other people pretending to be prophets and offering a better message. Remember where we started with Jeremiah? Let me just read out of Jeremiah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. This is where we started with Jeremiah. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all whom I will send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not Be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. 
See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Do you see the transformation that happened to Jeremiah? My goodness. But even more than that, even more than Jeremiah's faithfulness, we see the faithfulness of a loving God who never gave up on his people. A God that gives chance after chance. In 2 Timothy, we're told, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Just as any good father never gives up on his kids, so our father never gives up on us. And even if that means judgment and discipline, he will do what he needs in order to draw us to him. And as I just mentioned, our third theme that we talked about was judgment. As we just read in the beginning of Jeremiah, judgment was promised from the very beginning. And the whole book is about judgment. Last week, we looked at judgments on nine different people groups. But as we looked at those passages, we didn't spend a ton of time looking at the actual judgments handed out. Let me read just a little portion. This is out of Jeremiah 51. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon, against the inhabitants of Leb Kamai. And I will send to Babylon winnowers, and they shall winnow her. And they shall empty her land when they come against her from every side on the day of trouble. Let not the archer bend his bow, and let him not stand up in his armor. Spare not her young men. Devote to destruction all her army. They shall fall down slain in the land of the Chaldeans and wounded in her streets. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken by their God, the Lord of hosts. But the land of the Chaldeans is full of guilt against the Holy One of Israel. Judgment isn't pretty. It's ugly. And it's a part of who God is. Our God judges the wicked. He is full of wrath. He is vengeful. He is also loving, full of mercy and grace, compassionate. And the presence of these qualities do not negate the presence of the other ones and vice versa. It's so easy to talk about his love, his grace, his mercy, because we like that. But also, if we're being wily, it gives us a free pass. Oh, it's okay. God will forgive me. Or he's loving, so he'll let me into heaven. But God can't stand sin. He hates it. And he has to judge it. Look at Jeremiah 5, verses 1 through 9. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search your squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, 
These are only the poor. They have no sense. For they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? God hates sin. He judges because he is God. He cannot let sin slide. He wouldn't be God if he did. So sin has to be dealt with. It has to be punished. And if that's where Jeremiah ended, it would be a really depressing book. But as we've seen, there's more to this book. Because throughout this book, there is hope. There's hope. Remember, we just read about Jehoiachin's release. So here, the nation of Judah is sitting in exile. And maybe they're having a hard time believing that this hope is coming, believing that they are going to be restored. And in the midst of that, God offers a little glimmer of hope. This exiled king that was in prison has now been released. Now, sometimes he works the same way with us. Maybe we're in the midst of a difficult trial, or maybe we're in the midst of discipline, and we're having a hard time believing that there is a reason to hope. And then God slips in something, even something little, to remind us that he is there with us. A little bit of hope. But this passage about Jehoiachin is just another little sliver of all the hope that is offered throughout the book. I'm going to flip through a couple different passages and just point them out to you. Jeremiah 24, verses 6 to 8. It says, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. And then 29, verses 10 to 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, hang on guys, we're about halfway there. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. 31.17 says, There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. 
32 verses 38 to 41. Are you seeing this here? And they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in the land of faithfulness with all my heart, with all my soul. And we just read last week in 46, 27, 28. There's hope all throughout the book of Jeremiah. Now the biggest hope offered is the coming Messiah, which again was always God's plan and still is. Chapter 23 Verses 5 and 6, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. These themes and everything else in the book of Jeremiah has given us a deeper understanding of our Father. Just as it did for the nation of Judah, so it does for us. We see a father that laments over the sin of his people, who laments over their lost state. You can hear his sorrow in Jeremiah 3, verses 19 to 20. It says, I said, how, w- how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful in all the nations. And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. Surely, as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so you have been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. You hear his sorrow. We see a faithful father that doesn't give up on his children. We see a God of wrath that is vengeful and just, condemning sin and disciplining the disobedient. And we see a God that loves his people enough to offer them hope despite the rebelliousness. Throughout the book of Jeremiah, God condemns and promises judgment to those who want nothing to do with him. And yet he offers mercy and grace to a people that are lost on their own. Does that sound familiar? Jesus condemns those who want nothing to do with him. And yet he offers mercy and grace to a people that are lost on their own. In its overarching message, the book of Jeremiah points ahead to the Messiah the people have been waiting for, and thus it offers the greatest hope of all, Jesus. You can't help but see the gospel in the book of Jeremiah. The nation of Judah is living in sin. God has to judge the sin. There has to be a consequence. And yet he offers hope of reconciliation. The only way for that to happen is through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus came to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. This is where we benefit by getting to see the whole picture, by getting to read this while understanding the full picture of God's plan. Though the nation of Judah had heard whispers of a Messiah and believed one would come, they didn't fully understand why. But we do. Hindsight is twenty twenty. We can clearly see Jesus in this book, knowing who he is and seeing how so much of Jeremiah points ahead to the Savior. Each of us on our own sits in judgment. We deserve separation from God. We deserve his wrath. 
we have an uncompromising God that cannot stand the sight of sin. And so we cannot be in his presence. But his love for us is so great that he always had a plan in place to restore that relationship. That plan was Jesus. The priests in the Old Testament would kill animals as a sacrifice to atone for their sins. The punishment for sin is death. And so these animals were substitutionary sacrifices. But because the people continued to sin, they also had to continue to sacrifice. Blood had to continue to be spilled. This was always a temporary solution until the fullness of time. God's plan was always Jesus Jesus was able to come back and be the perfect sacrifice that would cover every sin, past, present, and future. He was able to do so because he lived a perfect life, because he is God, and because he didn't stay dead. And so he stepped in, took the judgment that we deserve, and covered our sins with his blood, so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see our sin. He sees the blood of Jesus through his sacrifice. Jesus offers us hope. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us a relationship with him. Now, many of you have accepted that gift, but maybe you haven't. Let what you've learned about Jeremiah draw you to Jesus, draw you toward a life with him. Romans 10, 9 says says that if you confess with your sins, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him, from the dead, you shall be saved. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And one of my favorites, Romans 3.23-24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the judgment. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the hope. I would encourage you, if you haven't accepted, to accept his gift. And if you accept his gift today, don't keep it a secret. Be sure to tell me, to tell someone near you. It's cause for celebration. All of scripture points to Jesus. Let me read again Galatians 4, 1-7, which I started with this morning. Listen for the truths we learned in Jeremiah. And listen for what we learned about our father. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And if you accepted Jesus today, that's talking about you. We're going to take communion together, which is a reminder for all Christians of the sacrifice Jesus made for us. We take it together to remember and celebrate what he's done. 
So whether you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years or just accepted him a couple minutes ago, this is for you. It's for everyone that calls Jesus their Lord and Savior. So if that's not you, we'd ask that you just let the elements pass by. But if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, take a cracker, take a cup of juice, and hold on to it. And after this next song, we're going to take the elements together. As we sing, soak in the truths of this song, in the beauty of the blood of Jesus. First Corinthians 11 it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. Then it says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, before we take, I wanted to point out one last thing in the book of Jeremiah. This verse talks about the new covenant. Let me read for you out of Jeremiah 31. The Bible's so cool. Jeremiah 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on this day, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the new covenant he was talking about. The new covenant was being promised to the nation of Judah hundreds of years before Jesus came. And what is that covenant? For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's take together remembering and celebrating the new covenant made possible through the sacrifice of Jesus. God, I am so thankful for the totality of Scripture. For the one message that is throughout the whole Bible that continues to point to Jesus. God, we just spent nine weeks 
in an Old Testament book, an Old Testament prophet, no less. A book that a lot of people have a hard time with and a hard time understanding. But God, as we dive into your word, we can't help but see you. We can't help but see Jesus. That's what all of scripture is about. So thank you so much for scripture. Thank you for your word. And thank you that we get the opportunity to read it, to dive into it, to understand it, to learn from each other, to know more about you. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us. In Jesus' name, amen.